Welcome back to the Megawatt Hour, the latest podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. In this series, we'll be examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing and recharging energy markets in the UK and further afield. So far in this series, we've looked broadly at the ways in which we can store and use energy, and we've already taken a closer look at battery storage in particular. This episode will tackle some of the other energy storage solutions available, ranging from the mechanical to the molecular, and hopefully everything in between. I'm Andrew Dykes, an editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm joined this time by my co-host, Viran De Silva, an associate director in the corporate and M&A tax team at BDO. Viran has a particular focus on transactions in the renewable energy sector, having advised on projects involving wind, solar, waste energy, and biomass. We are also pleased to welcome Stephen Crocher, Chief Executive of Reenergize. Stephen has led a series of entrepreneurial efforts spanning EVs, wind, solar, and other technologies, so he has excellent insight to offer on how these systems are influencing the need and the take-up of energy storage. Finally, we are joined too by Sarah Kimpton, Vice President for Energy Transition and Innovation Development at Assurance and Risk Management Group, DNV. Sarah has worked across the group's analysis on energy transition and has a particular focus on hydrogen, and so we'll be exploring why this technology will play an increasingly important role on our net zero journey. Uh, just to ease us into the discussion for this week, um, I think it's worth a quick recap. We obviously tend to understand energy storage as kind of electricity in and electricity out, um, but it's of course possible to store energy in, in lots of different ways and convert it and reconvert it into the forms that are useful. So Viran, do you want to maybe give us a quick recap on, on kind of how we think about these other forms of energy storage? Why is energy storage important? Without storage solutions to balance energy supply and demand, increasing renewable power generation just wouldn't be possible. So today we're looking at the technologies, how they work, where they might be deployed, and the pros and cons. So we'll be looking at not the battery solutions we looked at in the previous podcast, but hydrogen storage, uh, pumped hydro, and other mechanical forms of storage. Sarah, maybe you could give us a quick refresher on, on some of the other energy storage technologies that, that we're thinking about here. Yeah, I believe we previously talked about battery storage for storing power, but there are many other methods of storing energy. So for example, you can uh, obviously pump hydro, you basically pump water up a hill and then as you let it run down, you generate electricity or there's sort of kinetic energy storage or gravity storage. Um, or also there's poss just possibility of storing heat but the, what the uh, form of storage that I'm really, really interested in is the storage of hydrogen, as, which can be used directly or it can also be used for generating power. So it's, it seems to me to be a very, very versatile form of storage. And so we, we've covered um, some of these technologies and, and batteries in particular before. Are there, are there any reasons why we would want or, or need to use these other vectors other than storing electricity in kind of electrochemical forms like batteries? Can, can you maybe give us an idea of some of their advantages? Well, I think customers today and, and industry is going to need light and energy as much as they do now. Um, and in terms of the domestic situation, domestic, uh, vulnerable customers will, will need to look after them. Um, and I think at the moment you may have neglected the amount of energy that the gas networks are putting into the system. So at peak in the winter, they're putting in four times as much energy as the electricity networks. So if we do sort of dispense with the gas networks or go for full electrification, then we're going to need to replace that energy with power. No matter whether you go for electrification or you retain the gas networks and start putting low carbon hydrogen through them, you're going to need an awful lot of hydrogen storage to match the to, to cover the mismatch between supply and demand because renewable energy is inherently um, not not as predictable or, or not as controllable as say for example extracting gas from a field 
So no matter what, what the solution is, whether you go for full electrification or retain the gas networks and pipe uh, low carbon hydrogen through them, we're going to need hydrogen storage to cover that mismatch between renewable generation <clears throat> and and customer demand. So th this is kind of part of the idea that we've, we've kind of touched on briefly is that we think about energy storage as a new technology, but obviously oil and gas are, are very good forms of energy storage. They, they allow us to kind of move it around and, and we can store it seasonally as well. And that's kind of the incumbent problem that we're, we're looking to overcome. Our mechanical types, broadly speaking, you know, do they maybe offer some of the, the long duration problems that we're looking to overcome? I'm not sure I can, I know the answer to that one actually, Andrew. Um, <laughs> Certainly the more chemical storage does overcome many of the problems because storing molecules is inherently easier to do than storing electrons in a battery. So I think that the storing chemical energy, maybe in the form of hydrogen or, or whatever, is, is probably going to be a, um, a solution to the, to the at-scale solution for energy storage. So Stephen, do you maybe want to give us an idea of, of what Reenergize does and how it's playing in this market? Yeah, so uh, Reenergize, we're developing a form of mechanical storage based on traditional pumped hydro. And traditional pumped hydro, for those who don't know, is where you have a huge reservoir at the bottom and the top of a mountain and when energy is uh, abundant you pump water up the mountain and when energy is in scarce supply or more expensive you release it and regenerate electricity through a turbine. So it's a, a traditional pumped hydro has been around for um, over 100 years. Um, it's been deployed in uh, large volumes across the world. Uh, today about 95% of the total world's energy storage is pumped hydro and it was built to balance uh, baseload nuclear and coal power um, uh, in the last 40, 50 years predominantly. Um, so it's a very mature, um, large capacity form of energy storage. So what Reenergize are doing that is different, that rather than using water, we've introduced a fluid that's two and a half times denser than water. And the advantage of a higher density fluid is one of two things. So um, either you can reduce volumetrically the size of the construction size of your project. So at a two and a half times denser fluid, the construction size is 60% less. Um, so so the, the speed to build and the cost of building is significantly less. Or alternatively, you can reduce the vertical elevation that you need by, again, two and a half times. So we would achieve the same power energy at 20, uh, sorry, at 200 metres than you would with a water project at 500 metres. In terms of, I suppose, the parameters, kind of what, what kind of capacities are you looking at in terms of megawatt and, and how do you kind of choose where to put these projects? Are you, are you building all of this infrastructure or do you still rely as, as natural hydro does on, on a little bit of topography? So um, there, there is a reliance on a little bit of topography, um, but when you reduce the vertical elevation needed by 60%, then you get an order of magnitude more sites available to you. So you do have topographical constraints but uh, nowhere near in the same form as in, uh, as with traditional pumped hydro so if we look at the UK alone we've identified uh, over six and a half thousand potential sites in the UK alone where we could install projects so uh, there's no real shortage of sites available to us and then in terms of either power megawatts or um, duration or megawatts hour there, there's no technical constraint to it but there probably are some practical constraints over over the size of the projects that you would uh, like to install so if you look at traditional hydropower then they install systems from you know a few kilowatts through to hundreds of megawatts and and that could be the same for us but we think realistically speaking our sweet spot is 10 megawatts to 50 megawatts that could be a bit bigger could be a bit smaller but that that's where we think the sweet spot is um, and the reason for thinking that is if you look at the uh, gas peaking plants that have been deployed on the grid over the last 
15, 20 years to provide the flexibility. They've tended to be in that scale range. And so it seems like the appropriate scale for, for providing the flexibility to the grid. Um, and then in terms of duration, um, today's market seeing the need for relatively short duration but as the increase as you increase the penetration of renewables on the grid then you need to shift um, to longer durations to balance the intermittency of renewables so if you have a grid that's dominated by solar um, you would expect that you would probably need something like six to eight hours of storage to manage that that overnight um, cycle well if you've got a grid that's dominated by wind then you get a sort of twice weekly cycle of wind roughly so you would then need longer capacities maybe in the 16 to 20 hours to to to, to balance that so we see in in time a typical system for for us would be six up to maybe 20 hours of duration um, which is where we see the vast bulk of the energy storage need is going to come if you're trying to balance um, the cycles of renewable that's where the vast bulk is going to be needed um but we're not a solution for the very short-term frequency response type markets um, that's supplied by other sorts of technologies. And also, we're not really a solution for the interseasonal type solution. Ultimately, that will probably be provided by green hydrogen. How feasible is co-location? Is it, is it practically possible? Or Yeah, it, it's completely feasible co-location. There's no real technical reason why you can't be either connected to the grid directly or behind a meter, either from a generator or for a large energy user. There's lots of case studies. So we see mines as an attractive market. We've got high levels of 24-7 power demands. We also see that paradoxically EV charging um, at uh, infrastructure points such as um, or on motorways, we see that as an attractive thing where we we sit behind batteries who provide the fast charge and we sit provide them to provide the sort of the duration that that, that is needed um, so 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 we see lots of applications and co-location is is an obvious one the synergy with wind may be slightly stronger because they tend to be built on hills um, rather than solar which tends to be built flat we also find even on flat ground that uh, that there are lots of things like mine shafts and you know other types of infrastructure that has been built over the last couple of hundred years that that you uh, it, it doesn't necessarily exclude um, a flat site but but um, it would need more investigation and it's the heavy water that that you're using how easy is that not to produce and is it how, how green is it? So uh, we tend to try and avoid calling it heavy water because of the connotation with uh, um, the nuclear industry. Um, but but in effect, it's a yeah, high density fluid is what it is. And uh, so it's a suspended solid in water. So we use an environmentally benign mineral. We grind it up to a powder. Um, then we add some chemistry to it. Uh, and that makes the particles within the water suspension repel each other, which is how you create a stable suspension um, so it's stable over time and the raw minerals are environmentally benign they don't react they're inert so so we're, we're, we're um, and we put it in a closed loop system rather than in a, a, a large reservoir um, uh, or open reservoir and that's because we don't want contaminants in it but um, also uh, you, you you don't want things like evaporation so you have to manage it it's like a, another bit of the engineered solution and then in terms of is it available the, the minerals we use are, are widely available across the world they're, they're sort of used in commodity markets so, so availability is a is is not a thing that we're particularly worried about so you mentioned there um, gas peaker plants for the kind of capacity market and also I presume private infrastructure like like mines. Can you maybe give us an idea of, of the business model? Would you see yourself as a, an owner and operator, or also a generator? How how does that work? 
No, our, our business model as Reenergize is a, a licensor. So our ambition is to scale this technology incredibly fast across the world. And if we were to go out and build our own projects it would take you know decades to make a meaningful impact on the on the, the climate emergency which is what we're trying to do um so we think the solution is uh, we, we should be a ip rich um business and then license that ip to uh, customers across the world who've already got their on the relationships and know the market so these might be project developers or epcs or or even oems who have sort of particular sales channels for their equipment so so we wish to license it and then build multiple projects in tandem in multiple jurisdictions um, is is our ambition that's not to say we wouldn't own captive projects but we see the vast bulk of our projects to to be licensed rather than owned. And uh, can you maybe give us an idea of the, the the market that you see for this? Have you had a lot of interest kind of in the UK and globally? Yeah, we, we have interest from across the world. Um, I, th I think it's now about 20 countries where we've ha had interest from. Um, and uh, that's without really trying to look for markets. We've very much been in the process of... Um, technology development and and those sorts of things rather than pure commercialization and we're just in the process of switching that recruiting a, a, a larger team to then commercialize the technology um, so, so that that's one of the transitions that we have going on at the moment and then we'll be much more proactive in in looking for customers and uh, customers could be from landowners or developers in the broadest sense of the word of a developer um, so, so that's what we're the, the next stage on our journey. Also, the um, demand for heat is so huge in the UK. It's about at peak. It's about four times greater than the electricity demand. So, thinking about how we're going to decarbonize all of that and reduce our reliance on natural gas is going to be really, really important. And that's where I think low low carbon hydrogen comes into play, um, especially with it's re uh, generated from renewable power like uh, wind or solar. Um, and I, I think hydrogen's got a great role to play in there. And I think we're in danger of violently agreeing, Stephen, <laughs> in, in what you were saying about pumped hydro and what I'm saying. Mine, mine's long-term duration storage and you're looking at a, a sort of a short to medium term, aren't you? Yeah, call it mid-duration yep. um, because um, there, 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 there seems to be there are going to be three distinct markets. There's going to be the uh, short-term sort of frequency type response, react, fast reaction type yep. markets. And then there's going to be the bulk of the, the shifting of the energy. And then there's going to be the stuff that's uh, interseasonal or, or, you know, intermonthly type storage that, that needs to do the rest. Um, Can I just ask, Sarah, do you have much interaction with heat storage solutions? No, not really. Not really. Um, my focus is mainly on um, how we decarbonize the gas networks because they, mm -hmm. they're producing like 900 terawatt hours of energy, which is a huge thing to decarbonize. So that's what I've been focusing on. I wasn't going to ask Stephen. Not, not particularly heat networks. I mean, we, we do have an opportunity to store low-grade heat within the fluid. As long as we don't boil it, we don't, don't really care. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, there, there is an opportunity to do that. Yeah. It's something that we see it as an opportunity, but not on every site. So, so we're very much more focused on um, the, the electricity side but but if there are opportunities at specific locations for sort of storage of low-grade heat and that could be done for over longer periods of time but you know there, there is an opportunity there not a core biz part of our business okay our increasing reliance on water is really really interesting because yes. Stephen's talking about you pumping aqueous solution whatever it is uh, to create pumped hydro but then we're we're, we're looking at uh, using water to split it to you know, separated into hydrogen and oxygen. So our increased reliance on water is uh, 
It's really interesting, um, especially, you know, now since we've had that very dry period when there's a shortage of water. So I'm just wondering how that would impact on, on our energy system and storage in particular. I mean, I think that is absolutely a thing that we need to be mindful of. I think what we're finding in lots of countries is that the total amount of rain may change a little bit, but what changes more is when you get it. So we'll shift from, uh, so in the UK where you have so the rain spread out much more evenly over the year to a climate where the rain is heavier and shorter, which creates a different set of problems, especially in storing it. Um, you get much more runoff and, and it gets uh, flushed out to sea, etc. So, so the, your ability to capture the rain that you get and use it is is more of the problem rather than the total amount of rain is is how I, I I think that's probably different if you're in somewhere like the Seychelles in sub-Saharan Africa I think that's probably a different different problem but in, in Europe I, I think our climate is probably moving a little bit more to like southern France has been where you get you know incredibly heavy rain but for quite short periods of time and and that's what we're going to increasingly experience um, so the infrastructure challenge is how you capture that and I also believe that um, even in places like the UK, which is thought of as wet, that, that somewhere like the southeast is probably going to need to think about desalination of seawater um, and use energy for that, that water will become a greater challenge than, than we currently think. Um, most of the UK will be fine, but I think that where you've got high intensity of population and relatively low rainfall, I think that will desalination is probably going to be an answer even for the UK. I think, I think that's interesting in that we, we tend to think of a lot of these sections of the energy market as, as islands and they kind of deal with their own thing, but obviously everything is, is connected and, you know, supply chains and resources down to the water level, you know, are things that we are going to seriously need to consider on, on this net zero journey. Um, I think that's a great place to pause before we return to talk a little bit more about hydrogen storage. To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics, but more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential. BDO, more than a numbers machine. So Sarah, I'm going to throw to you. Can you maybe give us uh, a broader idea of, of what hydrogen can perform in terms of its storage function and, and why we need it so badly? You, you alluded earlier to the kind of the gas networks, but um, yeah, could you give us a, a broader idea? Yeah, I mean, the, the gas networks are um, sort of the unsung heroes of our energy systems. They, they are running 900 terawatt hours of um, energy into into industry and business and, and commerce so replacing that amount of energy uh, you can either do it two ways you can either replace it with another low carbon molecule or you could electrify everything um, and either way i think you're going to need hydrogen storage so if, if for example you electrified um, everything that's currently used as natural gas you're still going to need 
uh, dispatchable power. That could either be natural gas with carbon capture and storage, or it could be hydrogen, both are low carbon solutions. But obviously, if you start running natural gas and carbon capture plant at, at um, sort of thermal generation, then that's actually less efficient than, than now. And you've also got to make sure you've got the, the carbon capture infrastructure in place. Or if you burn hydrogen directly in the peaking plants, um, you're also going to need um, hydrogen storage for that. So either way, I don't see how you're going to get away without having some kind of hydrogen storage or, or to replace the massive loads that the uh, natural natural gas networks are, are pumping around the country at the moment. On that point, can can I ask you to maybe give us a brief primer on the, the hydrogen color wheel? <laughs> we hear about blue and green and, and gray hydrogen. Can you maybe, uh, yeah, can you elucidate for us? Yeah, that there's and that there's also uh, people disagreeing about the colours. So green hydrogen is usually hydrogen that's generated from the electrolysis of water using renewable power, so that would be wind power or solar. Um, and there's blue hydrogen, which is generated by breaking down uh, methane, which is in natural gas, and converting that to hydrogen and carbon dioxide. And in, for or in order for that to be blue hydrogen, the carbon dioxide has to be captured and stored below ground, so it's taken out of the... Um, the carbon system or there's pink hydrogen as well which is another low carbon form of hydrogen which is where, where the electricity is provided by nuclear generation and you and again you're using you're splitting water by electrolysis and generating low carbon hydrogen like that and then there's gray and brown which are the sort of hydrogen we have now where we sort of get it from natural gas and we don't um, capture the carbon dioxide so it, it's it's not very very good for the planet so those are the, the main colours. So gray, uh, green, blue, pink, grey, and brown. Thank you. So there are all sorts of things in that, but <laughs> I think I think mainly we want to make sure. I mean, they're all they're all ways of identifying um, the carbon intensity of the, the hydrogen, basically. Perfect. Um, so so far in the UK, you know, we've seen a few kind of hydrogen clusters um, pop up or, or proposals for them. There, are, some plans are underway. That seems to involve a lot of industrial users. Could you maybe give us a scale of the, the opportunities that are available and, and how the, the market is going at the moment? Yeah, I mean, Bayes have been running um, a comp competitions looking at uh, industrial clusters as the basis for decarbonizing industry. So industrial clusters are very, very energy intensive areas and they use, a, they use a hell of a lot of energy very, very quickly. And so the idea was to decarbonizing these industrial clusters. So the two industrial clusters that are going ahead are in the northwest, um, around the sort of um, Liverpool, Manchester kind of area, and the other ones in the Humber area. These are the, the, the major areas of emissions in, in the UK. So what they're doing there is they're trying to convert uh, industry in these areas from natural gas to hydrogen. Um, and in the Northwest uh, scheme, they're looking at using blue hydrogen. So that would be hydrogen generated from natural gas with the carbon dioxide buried under the Irish Sea somewhere. And in the Humber one, they're looking at similar projects um, with blue hydrogen as well, um, taking the carbon dioxide away um, in, in, and uh, burying it under the North Sea. So th th they're just ways of initiating decarbonisation. And then, then what we're hoping is that the decarbonisation of the rest of the um, rest of Britain will then roll out from those uh, sort of seed areas. Is hydrogen kind of one of the silver bullet technologies in terms of this idea around seasonal storage? So being able to, to kind of pr produce and, and store, then move that into the winter when we need, especially for heat, something that's capable of outputting the, the level of output that you just mentioned that it's eight, eight or nine hundred terawatt hours worth of energy yeah i mean hydrogen is really good because no matter where, wherever you're using natural gas you can use hydrogen instead for most applications so 
a sort of um, like, for example, refineries generate a lot of hydrogen. They use a lot of hydrogen in the lots of heavy industry in uh, Teesside, Humberside, for example, are, are using hydrogen. Yeah. So, so wherever you can use natural gas, you can replace it with hydrogen most usually. And you, it's sort of notable that these two areas, this sort of northwest and the northeast, have also got the availability of salt cavern storage for hydrogen. So in the northwest, you've got the Cheshire area, which has got lots of salt caverns. And then in also in the Humberside area, you've got uh, salt cavern storage as well. Um, and that seems to be the, the sort of most accessible um, form of hydrogen storage in, in, the, in the short term. So a salt cavern will take you about 10 years to excavate. Um, and then storing hydrogen in a salt cavern is proven technology. I mean, there are other options being looked at, for example, um, repurposing uh, spent hydrocarbon fields with and using them for storing hydrogen or even carbon dioxide for carbon capture. But these are slightly more um, tentative uh, technologies at the moment. We know that we can store hydrogen in salt caverns, but we're, we're still, sort of still working on whether we can store hydrogen in um, spent hydrocarbon fields. So it's, it's a known technology. We know you can do it. The trouble is it depends on you having salt cavern storage available nearby. And that's, that, that's probably one of the chief regions by why by the northwest and the northeast have been chosen for, for these initial um, industrial cluster projects. So I think we should move on to maybe looking at um, how the UK is supporting these technologies a little bit more generally. Um, you know, Stephen, do you think there's the kind of right policy and frameworks in place already to be able to allow you to license this technology and have interest from developers? Or do you think that needs a little bit more work? So at the moment, um, the UK, like most countries around the world, are exploring what the regulation landscape might look look like for um, energy storage. Um, there, there's definitely not yet a clear market or regulation around um, uh, energy storage that, that is fit for the future. Um, but the UK government and other governments do seem very aware that it's something that they do need to resolve. I think probably the timescales we're, we're re realistically looking at are you know, three to four years to have a much more transparent um, regulation framework in place or and what the incentives might be and what the payment mechanisms for for these type of technologies and you know for different durations um, and it will vary from country to country um, different countries will ha have different needs and they will their regulation framework will will change so or, or differ from each other so so you could um, imagine uh, someone like France with lots of nuclear power um, uh, whether they replace it or not as it retires is going to need something different to somewhere like Poland which has got a lot of um, hydrocarbon infrastructure at the moment and they'll probably shift to something that isn't nuclear, nuclear and so they will need very very different types of energy storage and probably a regulation um, map around it as well. And, and Sarah in terms of then uh a hydrogen producer st storage operator do you see a kind of a model that would emulate how we think about gas right now is, is that also another easy win and that we can just transfer those kind of business models over unfortunately um, we don't think so because at the moment i mean if you look at the history of of the gas networks um when it was nationalized in the 1970s or so there was a national storage strategy for gas but as the gas networks have been broken up and made more commercial that's sort of largely dropped out of favor and um, for the for the gas system now we almost completely rely on LNG as our method of storing uh, gas at the moment. So, you know, whenever whenever we need um, an extra extra supply of gas, we just order a few more boatloads of LNG and it arrives and we put it into the terminal and then it goes into the system. But there isn't anything like that now for moving hydrogen around the world. Um, you can't move hydrogen like that. 
So I think we're going to have to be a bit more self-sufficient. Um, certainly in the short term with hydrogen, we're going to have to generate our own hydrogen, store our own hydrogen um, to make sure that we, we can continue to uh, provide the heat and light that, that we do now. Um, I think the government's done some great stuff on hydrogen policies and hydrogen strategies. I mean, if, you, if we look around the rest of the world, you find that the UK is actually probably one of the countries in the lead. Uh, and the EU's uh, also pretty strong as well. But I think for for storage, we still haven't really addressed it for hydrogen. And I don't think the government sort of fully appreciates what an urgent need there is for for hydrogen storage. Until there is some kind of hydrogen storage, then no one's going to start producing it at scale. Uh, and that's going to be a problem. So this sort of there's a chicken and egg thing going on there. You need the storage to persuade people to produce it. And, and then once once it's gone into storage, then you need the people to use it. So... We need we need the government to, to stimulate that that storage mechanism for hydrogen and come up with a decent strategy, rather than um, allowing us to sort of uh, depend upon on markets and things. Because I think it won't actually start unless the government has some kind of intervention there. Could, could I also pick up on that and, and talking a little bit about the the power grid, um, which is facing similar problems? We currently have a system where where the uh, network operators are really only allowed to build infrastructure if they can prove demand for it. Um, and that's whether you're a generator or a consumer. And that means that uh, there's a, a sort of a, an inertia to the system which shouldn't really be there. Because if we're moving to a energy system that is based on renewable energy or largely based on renewable energy, um, with probably some nuclear and some other bits in there we know where the resources are we absolutely know where it's going to be generated we know there's much more wind in scotland and and, and offshore and we know there's much more so, um, solar in the south where where the ability to generate is very well understood by by the market and there really should be a a system designer um that that starts putting in place um uh, what the system looks like knowing where the generation is going to come from um, and how you might move that, that that about, and it very much needs a system designer. But there's no reason what not to do it um, because because it's clear where the generation is going to come from. And I suspect that is somewhat similar uh, to the hydrogen network, even though I know much less about it. Um, where it's the hydrogen is going to likely to be generated, it's likely to come from a um, offshore type facilities. I, I would have thought on the whole. So you also know then where you're. You know you're not going to once you've created the hydrogen from offshore wind, you're going to want to store it locally to that. So, so I, I think again that there's a, a system design case um, across the network that is really needed, and there's no reason not to do it. And and it may not be a hundred percent right, but you'll probably get it eighty percent right, um, even for, from today. And and you can't build it all on day one. So you, you know what you build today is almost certainly going to be needed, and you, you'll have to evolve your system design over the next two or three decades but but it, it, there's not going to be a lot of waste if you design a system in my opinion yeah i agree with you i think it's a no regrets to actually get some national policy on on storage it's absolutely no no regrets no matter what solution we have whether it's electrification or we go for hydrogen we're going to need some kind of storage and the other thing i was going to say is that we're sort of working with the gas networks to actually work out how you can move hydrogen through the system so with the distribution networks, the lower pressure, it's probably going to be okay. 
but with the high-pressure nation national system, there's still some work to be done on, on whether hydrogen is fully compatible with that. I'm sure we can make it so, but there's some work to be done. So at the moment, we don't even have a national mechanism for moving hydrogen around. So that's another reason for sort of starting with the industrial clusters and building out regionally from that rather than going for a national solution straight away. But I agree with you, Steve, and I think a strategic storage strategy is something there's definitely no regret, no or low regrets and that the government should be thinking about doing that as soon as possible because we haven't got long it's 2022 now we've only got until 2015 we need to get this all sorted by then it takes 10 years to develop a salt cavern and if you've got hundreds of salt caverns to develop or hundreds of other things to develop it's we're running out of time it's really really urgent and time that we need to get cracking with this how far advanced are our regulatory frameworks will be so far away from it that it's putting a blockage in the way of progress what for hydrogen for hydrogen and yes and for, and for punt hydro i suppose it's uh, but hydrogen mainly well for for hydrogen um the government wants to make a decision in 2026 whether we're going to convert the gas networks to hydrogen so basically replace the natural gas with low carbon hydrogen so at the moment, we're working with with industry, um, trying to get together all the evidence that we need to demonstrate that it can be done safely and effectively. But, and once we get that decision in 2026, um, and then it's going to be all systems go to actually go about converting the whole country and industry and domestic and everything to hydrogen. Or maybe some of it could be electrified. I don't know. I mean, there's going to be all sorts of solutions in there. There's no one solution that fits them all. So 2026 is our target date for that decision from the government. And that's really, really important to the future of the, the gas system. What you tend to find is that the clarity of the regulatory framework really drives the decision to invest or, or, or not. Um, and uh, so if 2026 is when that's announced, then there's, uh, f for those who are mindful to invest in this sort of infrastructure, there's probably at least two years of of building their business cases and, and things like that um, and and then there's a inertia to build in the planning process and it is just going to take a, a huge amount of time so the sooner you get those regulatory frameworks in place the better chance you have of hitting 2050 or the less you have to compress things um, during the relevant time frames. Vera and I'm, I'm going to throw it to you do you see appetite in the market to invest in technologies like this? I mean, I know you work with a lot of developers potentially, and you were mentioning co-location. Is that maybe where you're seeing a lot of interest in investing? We tend to work with, uh, sort of on the financing side, private equity funds. And so they're, they're focusing increasingly on, on renewable energy assets because uh, they're, they're stable uh, and they're widely proven. So anything like proper regulatory framework would encourage them, in, in, them to invest. And you know, they're, they're really looking at safe ways to deploy capital. In which case, um, <laughs> what I'm hearing is joined up thinking is increasingly important if we want to get some money moving around to, to back some of these projects. So, so um, I think there's a lack of appreciation on also on the sheer scale of the amount of storage um, that is likely to be needed a, a, a across the world. So at the moment, the total amount of energy storage we have in the world is a approaching 200 gigawatts while consultancies like McKinsey or, or the uh, Long Duration Energy Storage Council they're talking about two terawatts of energy storage so that's 10 times the total amount of energy storage that exists today is going to be needed by 2040 2050 I mean different people give different dates and this energy storage we have got today 95% of its pumped hydro um, batteries make up a, you know two three percent and that energy storage has been built over the last hundred years so what we're talking about 
by 2040 is every 18 months to two years is replicating the total world's energy storage that has been built over the last 100 years. So it's just a phenomenal challenge. The longer you leave it, the harder it becomes to, to, to deliver it. And that's one of the reasons that we went down the route of uh, a licensing model is just because the sheer scale of the rollout you need to do that, you know, no company can do it. You need hundreds of companies trying to achieve the goal. Um, and, and that's why we, we sort of opted for a licensing model. But the sheer scale is just phenomenal and, and you actually need to do everything, you know, thinking that hydrogen might be the solution or our high density hydro or batteries might be the solution. The, the answer is you just need it all and, uh, and uh, then you might have a chance of achieving what the world wants to achieve of decarbonisation by 2050. No time like the present, I'm hearing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm like Stephen, I'm really impatient. <laughs> I think we are running out of time. Um, we definitely need energy storage at scale. Um, and I think that hydrogen storage at scale is a no regrets solution as well. Um, we need to think about a replacement for importing LNG because, you know, that, that that's our go-to storage now. Whenever we've got a problem, we just get another boatload. We can't do that with hydrogen. People are talking about maybe shipping hydrogen around the world in the form of ammonia. But, well, ammonia is nasty stuff. And to get the hydrogen back out of the ammonia is actually another very energy-intensive solution. So I'm yet to be persuaded that that is a solution. I think we need geological storage at scale. Um, and I agree with Stephen on that. And finally, I think we need government support for hydrogen storage storage in particular right now just to get it going um, it's definitely no regrets we, we need it no matter what solutions we come up with and, and we need a mix of everything a bit of everything is what we need no one's no one's got uh, the, the whole truth i'm gonna let viran have the last word what would you like to to see done to kind of accelerate some of these um technologies either from the from the, the finance point of view the policy point of view um what do we need I think from the, from the government point of view, we, we need incentives for, for investment. Uh, hopefully there's a budget, emergency budget coming up. So maybe we can, we can wish for what, what Sarah, Sarah's asking for in that, but I, 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 probably not this, this early. But really we need encouragement to invest because of that, the, the scale that's needed by 2040, 2050. Uh, and, and at the moment we've got, we, we do have tax reliefs and incentives you know, so for credits for research and development, that incentives, cut allowances, but we we need we need something more substantial, particularly for the for the hydrogen industry. Uh, our time too is running short on this instalment of the Megawatt Hour, so I'll I'll draw us to a close there. Uh, that brings us to the end of the third instalment of the Megawatt Hour. Thank you once again to my co-host Viran as well as Stephen and Sarah. Thanks also to you for listening. You can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And every week, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. If you've not already, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen out for more episodes of the Megawatt Hour coming your way very soon. I'm Andrew Dykes. Thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too.
If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.